Timeless Voyager Radio. Self-development radio for the open mind. Interviews with leading edge authors and speakers. And now, Bruce Stephen Holmes for Timeless Voyager Radio. Hello everyone, this is Bruce Stephen Holmes for Timeless Voyager Radio. And I'm very happy to have with me today author Joan Wester Anderson. She has written a book called Where Angels Walk which is a group of true stories of heavenly visitors. It's a Ballantine book. Uh, welcome to the show, Joan. Thank you, Bruce. It's nice to be here. You are actually from Chicago. Well, yes, I blush to say it. It's uh, I'm kind of the Midwest housewife syndrome. Uh, this is your first trip out to Southern California? Well, as a working author, it is. Sure, I have been here before, you know, on vacations and things. Let's talk about the book. You asked the question, do you believe in angels? Mm-hmm. And uh, if so, uh, then you'll like the book. And if you don't believe in angels, you'll be able to change your idea of what angels are, are for and what they're about and perhaps what they look like. What led you uh, with... Uh, well, let's talk a little bit about your background and we'll find out why you wrote a book like this. Tell us, how did this all start? Well, I guess it, it started... It's kind of um, an offbeat story. The whole writing part of my life started because my husband and I bought a handyman special house about 22 years ago when we had a house full of small children. We bought this house because it was the only house we could afford. Was it like the money pit? Oh, (laughs) gosh, you've said it. It The whole place was painted mustard yellow, and I was just bilious the entire time. I was expecting another baby, and I thought, well, it must just be morning sickness. And after I had the baby, I realized, no, it's this house. So now we were a family of seven on one income. And at this point, I just felt I had to do something. So I started freelance writing, and I kind of lurched into becoming a magazine writer. And then every so often, just because it was a much more worthwhile creative process, I would write a book. And the books kind of flowed from what was going on at my life at the time. You know, I had a very traditional background, a Midwest sort of background. I was raising children, so I did a bunch of family humor books. And then when they hit adolescence, I did a book on raising adolescents called Teen is a Four-Letter Word. And then I did a book on working out of your home. All of these things, kind of how-tos. And then my son had this experience in 1983, and that, although I did not know it in 1983, became the catalyst for this book. Uh, Your background, religiously speaking, is what? I'm Catholic. I'm a cradle Catholic, and about 10 years ago I got into the charismatic renewal. What is a cradle Catholic? It means that you were born a Catholic. You know, you you didn't convert. You just kind of grew up that way, and um, of course in the Midwest in those years it was the only place to be. Um, So I had, you know, the very traditional biblical, scriptural based background, and from that's where I came from with the angels. When I began to realize what I thought was happening, I immediately went to scripture because that was where I had heard about angels. Now, of course, the scriptures are are, are not very clear at, at all uh, about what angels are, what they uh, look like, or mm-hmm. anything. They're heavenly hosts, and that's it. Mm-hmm. They do. Um, there are areas in scripture where angels come as ordinary people, and this was a real tip-off to me because this is what happened with the stories. Um, 
Oh, I think, you know, I'm, and I'm not a scripture scholar. As you probably know, Catholics were encouraged not to read scripture at the time when I was growing up because they, there was too much fear that we might misinterpret it. And um, thanks to the Protestants and others, we kind of got involved in it eventually on our own. And so from that, I learned little bits and pieces. And uh, that was probably enough to explain to me that um, the angels did pop up sometimes looking like, ordinary souls because up until that time I had always assumed that they just had wings and kind of floated there all right and <laughs> right why not yeah Aren't why they not supposed to have wings I mm-hmm. guess um, actually they don't have wings it's <laughs> it's just that I didn't know at the time that most art in the early centuries was religious art and so when artists were trying to depict stories and there were angels in the stories as part of scripture um, angels looked like men and they thought well how are we going to do this so they threw, an- they threw wings on the angels to show that they were um, spirit beings all right, and of course that's that's important for people to know because it's uh, <laughs> it's it's as though you know because I don't remember in the scriptures ever hearing anything about wings. No, uh-uh. although in Psalms there are some passages that say um, you know sh- taking shelter under your wing, and of course I think that that refers to the Lord mm-hmm. Himself, but the wing. Um, um, well, of course, we're talking about kind of translations. We're talking about yeah. coming from uh-huh. uh, German, and, and oh, sure. uh, the Germanic languages are different from the Aramaic mm-hmm. languages. And then we uh, we really get quite an interesting uh, situation it's that occurs, especially mm-hmm. when King James uh, <laughs> took <Right>. over. <laughs> okay, that's true. Really, um, it's amazing that there are women in the book in the first place. That's right. Um, okay, so. Um, <laughs> Midwest. So now this kind of information now, and, and, and um, you know, when you're in California, you know, anything goes. When you come out of the Midwest, though, this is a pretty little shocking thing for uh, for you to have written, isn't it? It is, but um, now I'm not, I don't mean that incidentally as a as any kind of a, a dig on the Midwest. I don't mean that at all because some very very influential people in all of the ages come from all parts of the world. But I'm just saying that that from the Midwest to write something like this, this would be uh, certainly different. Your neighbors mm-hmm. would not uh, probably be feeling real comfortable. Well, it was kind of interesting because um, when Tim had this experience, I probably should tell you about yeah, Tim. Yeah, let's then, talk. Let's talk about yeah. the experience. Let's get right into the book. This is which one is this? This is uh, this is the first one. This is about my son. This is, was really what happened. Is this searching to, for answers? Uh, no, it's, um, what is it? Angels all around us? No, it's the very first one. I think it's called The Beginning. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? Oh, The if Beginning. The I'm sorry. One. Okay. Yeah. Um, but this happened in 1983, and we were having this traditional Midwest Christmas, you know, where everybody gathered, and the flock came in from different parts of the country, wherever they were. And Tim and his friends at that point were living in Connecticut. They had graduated from college and had taken jobs out there. And they were going to drive in, and it was kind of one of these returning hero scenarios, you know, where you finally get a child launched, and the child really needs to come home. This is from the parents' stand, from yes, the, the parents' uh-huh. viewpoint. <laughs> well, yeah, and and the kid needs to come home as a separate entity now and show us all that that, you know, all of our goodwill and our finances have have evolved into this this creation. So, so what a nice way to say it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I was very thrilled at the kind of young man he became, 
But I thought it was important for him to come home too, just to kind of put the seal on all of this. So the trouble was that Christmas was on a Sunday that year, and the previous Monday, seven days before, the, our temperature started dropping in the Midwest. That Monday, the high was 11 below, and that, that is really surprising for us. And it just kept getting lower through the week. So by Thursday, they were to start on their journey on the 23rd on Friday morning, pre-dawn. We called and asked him not to come because we just felt it was too dangerous. We had seen weather indications in Indiana and Pennsylvania that said they were warning all rescue vehicles off the road at this point. But of course, you know, these kids are 21, so these these weather Invincible. Um, things are for other people, right? <laughs> right? I mean, they're not for them. Invincible beings. Sure. So they, they it was too late for them to get airline tickets, and they they really needed to come home. So so they set out on the morning of the 23rd, and by the evening of the 23rd, they still were not at home, and my husband and I went to a party in the neighborhood. We couldn't get anybody's car started, so we all ran down the block together like a bunch of, you know, a hovering mass of humanity breathing on one another. And then we came back about two or three hours later, and I expected Tim's car to be in the driveway, and it wasn't there. So I asked the other children, no, he hadn't called. Well, at this point, I was really concerned. I can't say that I had a foreboding necessarily. It just was a logical fear. He should have been here, and he hadn't called. And he's a considerate person, and he would have called, and he would have known that we were worried. So it was at this point into the 24th, the wee hours of the 24th, and I just went and sat underneath the Christmas tree, and I just started started praying. And my prayer was the same one that I used to use when the kids were little. I always said, God, you've got to send someone. Because when you're a mother of a lot of children, you don't pray for lengthy periods of time. You say, oh my God, you know, and you count that as a prayer or something. So I, I was used to praying in shorthand and giving God orders, of course. And I would always say, God, send someone. If my children were lost in a shopping mall, it would seem as though a security guard would just appear with them. Or if one was out in trouble, all of a sudden a neighbor's car would pull into the driveway and discharge my child. Well, we saw him wandering. He was afraid of snow, of storms or something. So that's what I meant. God, you've got to send someone is what I said. Because I just sensed that Tim needs you now. Well, I later discovered that Tim and his friend had dropped off the third boy in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and instead of staying there, they had gone on. Tim told me later that the home was not a welcoming home, and I found that rather significant because I think our homes should always be welcoming homes. And his, they just picked that up, so they went on. But the trouble was that the car died because of icing or something before they got on the expressway. So they here they are stranded now in a rural access road um, with nothing but cornfields around them. If you've ever been in the Midwest, there's nothing more desolate in the wintertime. No, um, no sound, you know, no lights flashing in the distance, no farmhouses, nothing. So they did not know what to do. And they sat there and thought, well, if we see a vehicle, we'll jump on it but there were no vehicles coming. 
So my son told me later that that was the moment when he realized he was probably going to die. And his first thought was, how dumb I have not paid my student loans yet. <laughs> Who's going to get stuck with those? And then all of a sudden, there was just a flash of light behind him. It was a tow truck. The guy got out and didn't say much, just said, you guys need some help? And they said, sure. He hitched them up. He took them back to this house that they had left maybe 20, 25 minutes before. The boys never really went into the house. They ran to the door, and the family was still up, and they came to the door. And Tim said, we'll explain in a minute, but we really are going to have to borrow some money from you to pay this tow truck because I'm sure the bill is going to be huge. He's just towed us in from a long distance. The family was looking out on the on the street, and they said, there isn't any tow truck out there. So Tim turned around and looked, and he said he had not heard, come to think of it, the slam of the truck door with the driver getting out. There had been no sound of chains or any of the usual things that you hear when a truck is letting a car down onto the pavement. There had been no sound of an engine pulling away. So he went and he looked um, down the street, and there were no disappearing taillights. And then he looked down at the street itself, and there were it was very windswept because at this point, the temperature had hit 30 degrees below zero with a wind chill of 80 degrees below, and that meant that exposed skin would freeze almost immediately, and this wind was whirling. And he saw across the, the street the tracks that his car had made as it came around the cul-de-sac and stopped. But there were no tracks leading away from it. So Tim came home and he told me this story and I did not know what to make of it. The only question I had for him was, what time did this tow truck driver came come? And when he told me that, he said, I know exactly what time he came. He came at quarter to two. And I realized then that at a quarter to one, and we did have a time change, so it was exactly the same time, that's when I had been sitting underneath the Christmas tree saying, God, you've got to send someone. And God did. But my next question was, who did he send? It sounds almost like something from the Twilight Zone. Yes. Um, but it's very important because this was what was the catalyst, as you mm -hmm. said, for writing a book, which is, as, as I said before, uh, true stories of heavenly visitors coming down and, and helping. I shouldn't say coming down, coming from somewhere. And uh, helping uh, mortals get through uh, or survive uh, instances of, of uh, ordeals. Um, your son was with another boy, so both of mm -hmm. them experienced yes, this. Yes, they did. Mm -hmm. Or another man, we should say. Young man. We asked them questions. We, we did what everybody does after they've had an experience like this, although we didn't know it at the time. The processing was the same. We tried to make sense of it through our own ordinary eyes. We second-guessed it and picked at it and said things like, well, was there any writing, any lettering on the side of the truck? And that had struck them. There was not. Did the guy give you any explanation as to why he was driving out of town at 2.30 in the morning? No, he never said anything at all. That was another hallmark of an angel experience. Angels don't seem to be real chatty. They kind of come in and go out. 
Um, they don't sit around and, and spend eons with us. Right, they don't chit-chat. No, they really don't. They're sort of, if you look Business at scripture, it's kind of a fear not or something like that, and, and they're gone again. So we did all of this not knowing what it was that we were looking for, just trying to kind of make sense of it. And ultimately, we really couldn't. So I just kind of stored it in my heart, as I say, and just waited. And I thought, well, I don't want to come to any conclusions. There's lots of things in life that aren't explainable. Um, but just, isn't, isn't that the important point here? Yes. There are lots of things uh-huh. in life that are unexplainable. Right. And we spend more of our time trying to either explain an event or say it's unexplained. But no one ever wants to really step over that line and say what you've said. What, that, that sometimes there are no real no, answers? No, no, but, that, but just... that you've resolved to the fact oh. that it was an angel. Oh, right. And, and you know, um, I still sometimes have doubts um, about certain stories in the book. I probably have 600 stories in my files right now that people have sent me. And I can't, you know, people will say to me a lot, was this an angel Experience, And I'll say, I haven't got the faintest idea. The thing is, do you believe it was an angel experience? What were the fruits of it? Did it bring you into a deeper search for God? Did it move you closer to eternity? Did you feel for just a moment a touch of heaven that you sometimes or most times don't feel? These are the questions that you need to ask yourself. You don't need me to validate this for you. But interestingly enough... When things like this happen to people, it is good for them maybe to talk to someone who could say to them, yes, that's a good possibility that that's the answer. Because so often these things are happening and people just hold them inside because they're so afraid of ridicule. And I don't think that's really what God wants. I think he wants Mm -hmm. us to share because it's good news. Well, it's an interesting point that you make because, uh, yes, people are afraid of ridicule. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't be a bit surprised to find out that many of us, if not all of us, have had probably uh, three, four, maybe 25, Mm -hmm. maybe 50 experiences like this during our lives. Mm -hmm. And we just let them go because we just don't feel like talking about it. That is exactly. um, A lot of times I get letters from people who say to me, since I've read your book, I am rethinking the coincidences in my life. And that's really what I want them to do, if anything. I'm not trying to sell the stories or say that this is the only way or, or that this is even, you know, necessary specifically true in every case, but I want people to awaken to a sense of care and love in their own lives and to be able to accept that when it comes and not be second-guessing it all the time or thinking that they have to earn it or they have to go to some shrine or something. You uh, you have an interesting quote on the back of the book, which I kind of liked. Of course, it's it says, angels don't submit to litmus tests. Mm-hmm. They don't testify in court or slide under a microscope for examination. Yet, uh, they're around us all the time. They're very much with us. Uh, they combat evil. They bring news. They warn of danger. They console us. Uh, the point is that that unlike the human, which which really likes to have some type of reward for what they've done, mm-hmm. angels don't have that. They don't want that, and yet they're out there probably doing uh, more than any human could ever do. Yes, that's true. Uh, because they are spirits, 
Um, and because in, again, the traditional faith that I come from, we see them as a separate creation. People do not turn into angels when they die. They're a creation all of their own. Mm-hmm. And, and we look at them and think, well, what is their purpose? What are their function? What is it that they're supposed to do? Well, primarily just worship God. And then maybe act as a liaison between God and us. And then that leads to the question, well, can't God deal with us directly? Well, sure, and he often does. But but from my viewpoint, angels appear in Scripture uh, over 300 times. So I figure if they're good enough for God to use at different periods in history or at different marvelous events, why would we assume that he isn't sending them now? You know, I, I, I very rarely ever tell stories. I'll tell <laughs> but you know, it. <laughs> you, you, you brought up, uh, well, no, it's, it's really more or less uh, just kind of a light story. But, uh, you know, with all the floods that people have gone through, mm-hmm. there was a story of this woman that was sitting on the top of her house. Mm-hmm. And the men came by in the boat and said, hop in. She said, no, God will save mm-hmm. me. And then the, uh, the helicopter came by and said, uh, you better get in. Uh, you know, and she said, no, no, no problem. God will save me. And then the water came over the house and she drowned. And when she came to see God, she said, I expected you to save me, and you didn't. God said, look, I sent a boat, you didn't get in. I sent a helicopter, (laughs) you didn't get in. What do you expect? The point that you're bringing up, though, is that very thing. I mean, we're looking for something other than the very simple and pragmatic things that everything around us is of God, and so why can't God use that to help us? Why does God have to somehow come and show himself to us and say, yes, yes, I've come here for you. I mean, <laughs> yes. when I was at mass last Sunday, um, I forget what the reading exactly was, the, the scriptural um, numbers to it, but it was one of the prophets and it's a familiar reading to anybody that has ever um, looked at the Bible. Um, it's, it was an Old Testament prophet and he was looking for God in the fire and in the, the wind and in the, you know, all these crashing things. He kept looking for God it was, and it was one of these gentle things, but God was not in the fire. And then he went out and he looked for God in the thunder and lightning, but God was not in the thunder and lightning. And then he heard a whisper of the wind and that's where God was. And I really love that because it's not as though God isn't in the fire, but we tend to look at the, you know, the huge things in our life and say, well, gosh, this must be something of God, you know, but the little quiet thing, um, just the reassurance or somebody coming up and telling you just the right thing that you needed to hear. That's from God too. And we just miss all these moments. So I don't believe at all that everything that happens to us is necessarily angelic. But I do believe that they have a part to play in it. And some of the more astonishing things that have happened to people have come from them. Like I pick up a lot of stories on my travels. And um, I hate to tell stories from the book because it spoils reading for people that might want to read it. But um, just this tour that I've been doing... Interestingly enough, I, I flew to Dallas, and Dallas is usually a two-hour flight and from where I am, and I, my seatmate, a man, sat down next to me. And I have a tendency, as I think all of us do, to keep our eye on what the end of the journey is supposed to be. And, and I, so I'm thinking, okay, now I have to go to Dallas, and I have to say this, and I have to, to get here. And all of a sudden, my seatmate started to talk to me, and I'm thinking, oh, please, no, I have these things I have to think about. You know, so often we miss the moment because we're thinking about what's ahead. And 
So this man, I thought, well, I'm going to have to tell him what I'm going for. Well, he was very fascinated about the book. So I gave him a copy of the book to look at. And I said, now, don't feel you have to read this. He said, no, I'd really like to read it. Don't you see? I'm wearing an angel pin. So I looked at his lapel, and sure enough, he had an angel pin. And I thought, isn't this ironic that probably all the people in this plane, I would be sitting next to the guy with the angel pin. But then I noticed that he had, the pin had a broken wing. And I said, you know, your pin is broken. I have angel pins in my purse if you would like me to give you a new one. He said, oh, no, I wear it for that reason. I wear it to remind myself that I've been broken too, but I'm still flying. So I thought, oh, wait a minute. I think I'm getting a treasure here sitting next to me. So I gave him the book, and he, he said, I said, now, now just if you want to look at it, don't feel you have to read it all because you won't hurt my feelings. And he said, no, well, he started reading it. Then he started eating it. He just kept going as fast because he knew we were going to land pretty soon. We get to Dallas, and, and we start our descent, and he's got one-third of the book left. And all of a sudden, the captain comes on and says, we're going to have to circle for a while. We haven't been cleared, and they're having... And I'm thinking, God, what are you doing here? So we went around... And, and he finished the last story as we touched down. And he closed the book and he said to me, I see, now I see. And I said, what do you see? And with tears in his eyes, he said, well, that makes sense. I had an experience like this once and I never knew what to do with it. So he proceeded to relate to me my favorite kind of story, which is... The, the category where other people see a figure near you, protecting you or loving you, but you don't. It's just the opposite of Tim. They saw this person, and then this tow truck guy was gone. Well, this man on the airplane said to me, he had hit a real low point in his life. He was suicidal, actually, and... He said, what I remember most about that time was the intense loneliness. He said, I suffered so much from aloneness that I just did not know what to do. I had no connection with anybody in the area where he was living, and he just felt abandoned. So one night he went into a restaurant, and the first person that greeted him at the door was the maitre d'. And the, the maitre d' looked at him and said, table for two? And he said... No, just one. And the maitre d' gave him kind of a funny look and escorted him to a table, and he pulled out two chairs. So the man sat in one chair, and he was still very steeped in his own mood. And so when the waitress came up, she laid a, a menu in front of him and a menu at the other chair and filled two water glasses. Well, he thought that she probably assumed that there was someone sitting there, and he, d he wasn't even in the mood to correct her. But as he began to eat, he said, all of a sudden, I began to think, wait, life is not as bad as I'm thinking. And he began to have this really soothing, healing sort of experience where in his mind was beginning to flash all the blessings, all the things that he wasn't noticing at the moment. And he felt better and better and better. And as he finished, he got up and went to pay the bill. Now there's now this is now three people. He's now talking to a cashier. And she rang up the bill and gave him his change and smiled at him and said, guess your friend wasn't hungry, huh? 
And he said he was all the way out the door before he realized that three people in the restaurant had seen someone sitting with him, and he did not. And he had never known what to do with that experience until he read my book and realized that that was the source of the grace that he experienced was probably his angel sitting nearby. Joan, why are angels so popular these days? Well, it's kind of a funny thing. I I think it kind of grew on us. In 1985, 86, when I was first searching for angel stories, I didn't know quite how I was going to do that, and so I just kind of would stand up in front of an audience and tell them about Tim. Usually I would be maybe going to give a speech or teaching a class or something, and after that specific job was over, people are usually saying, so what are you working on next or what's going on in Right, like this is a trendy thing, yeah. Yeah, so I would say, well... I had this experience, or actually my son had it. Well, in 85 and 86, when I would relate that story, you could almost see people's faces closing. It was almost as if they just didn't want to hear it because it sounded sort of flaky. I could hear them say, especially... Like a campfire story. Yeah, like, you know, gee, she was a nice woman until she started on this. (laughs) Oh, boy. Now I'll have to rethink my impression of her. That was sort of the way it was. But a year or two later, I would see a flash or a spark of awareness in a couple of faces, as if I had touched them somewhere and they couldn't wait to get to me, but they would not stand up in front of the crowd and do this. They would come back afterwards and say, you know, we've had, I've had an experience like this. And then I would frantically write their names down, and they, they prof- provided kind of an informal database for me when Get I started them on your writing a book. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Someone you could definitely call and uh-huh. speak with without being harassed. Sure. Uh, I think that the, the half-uncertain look on their face was, was basically what you have alluded to before, the fear of being mocked. There has to be a, a, a certain type of trust between people before someone will share something like this because it's touched them in an area that they're not real sure about. Often I notice that men would begin to tell me something and have to turn away. You know, it was they were going to cry and they it was making them nervous that they were going to cry and I would always say, "Well, gee, this is great." You know, because this is a healing time for you. Um, but we had to have this trust between us before they would tell us what had happened, tell me. By 1990 or so, when Sophie Burnham's book, A Book of Angels, came out, I didn't know that that book was out, and I was working on mine thinking that I was the only person. And I had a momentary shock when I heard about the book because I thought, well, not that I thought I was on any kind of a trend, but there's already a book out on angels now. Does this mean I shouldn't do mine? And I'm kind of into signs, you know. I figure, well, I'll know. About a week later, I I opened up my mail, and there's, along with the letters, was a little box sent to me from a pen pal in Canada. I've never exchanged a gift with this woman. I've never met her. Um, She only, we only write at Christmas. This was March or April. There was no reason for her to have sent me anything. But in the little box was a ceramic angel, and it wasn't an angel praying. It was an angel looking somewhat perplexed, almost like a child angel, just the way I felt. And there was a little note in the box from her, and it said, Don't ask. 
I was simply going through a store. I saw this. Your name popped into my mind. And with spiritual people, you don't really have to ask why they did it. They just did it. And it was exactly the answer that I needed because I felt what I was being told to do was go ahead and write the book. I did not realize at that time until the book came out in 92, four other books came out at exactly the same time, written by four other authors on completely different approaches to this. A couple of them were kind of new age books. They were much more into the psychic idea of angels. Mine was quite traditional and told stories. Another one was rather traditional and told an overview of the whole thing about angels. No two were alike, and yet they all came out at the same time. And each of the publishers thought that they were the only ones bringing an angel book out. So I just feel that somewhere along the way, this was all intended to be. And at the same time, there was a hunger developing um, in America, I think, for this kind of material. I think we've tried to do it without our spiritual natures for so long that people are just just longing for longing to be fed spiritually well there are those who say that that the uh, angels which are elementals uh, mm-hmm. share this planet with us that this is actually their planet and that we were the the newcomers not them and that as part of the um just imparting this information, folks. <laughs> As part of the agreement, uh, that we would be just outside, or they would be just outside of our line of vision. That mm-hmm. way, we wouldn't be able to see them. But that they uh, they were very happy to allow us to participate here. But I guess now they've decided that they want to start um, regaining some of their uh, uh, territory in the sense that they want to let us know that they're sharing this with us. We have the idea that this is ours and that they don't exist, you Uh know, which I think has gone too far. I think that's really perfect. Um, That really is a a perfectly balanced viewpoint of them because if you're going to go back to the Bible, they were here first. I mean, they were created before us. Thomas Aquinas felt that the creation of the world and the creation of angels was simultaneous and that, that humankind came along you know, however later mm-hmm. they came. But certainly we do not own this, this planet. There were others here. The uh, So your feeling is that angels are becoming popular because why? Because people are, are opening up their perception or, or becoming uh, more awake? What is the problem? What's well, the situation? I think we can't help but look around and, and think, what has society turned to? We've banished God and religion. It's kind of a dirty word. We stick it in... Uh, our churches on Sunday morning, mm-hmm. and that's it. It doesn't come out. If Science has kind of become the uh, sure. the, uh, the, the the important aspects, and mm-hmm. you know, we we look. I don't mean to you know take over here, but it seems like we take over. You're doing we, fine. <laughs> <laughs> Incidentally, for those of you who are listening, it is Timeless Voyager Radio. Uh, Joan Wester Anderson. That's who you are listening to, and uh, the book is called Where Angels Walk. But it seems that that um, that many of us. Uh, go along and uh, just feel that that, um, that life is uh, mostly for us and and uh, mm-hmm. that uh, you, you say religion is, is in the is in the church on Sunday and um, it, it it seems highly likely that there would somewhere along the line be a reaction to that so I guess uh, what we're having now is, is what always happens basically and that is that the the pendulum starts swinging yes. the other direction. 
I think that that's true. I, I've often used an analogy of myself. Um, all of us are mind, body, and spirit. Um, we're all interconnected. And I find for me, I'm not a person that particularly likes to eat anything in the morning. Kind of one of those late nibblers, those grazers that goes through the end part of the day eating but not the morning. But I find that if I don't nourish myself physically by 11 or 12 o'clock, intellectually I'm just not thinking very clearly. It's like my my physical is impacting on my intellect. Well, I think what has happened in our culture for the last yay how many years so we have not nourished ourselves spiritually and so we're, we're we have a sense of of you know stagnation about the rest of us um we just we have to take in uh, people call it like if you have your your meditation in the morning or whatever it is that you're doing you're filling yourself with energy so that you can go throughout your day and and be drawn to different people and know what it is that you need to do and if you don't take that time first then nothing else makes sense and so it depends on which way you're going to do it each person will do it differently but you have to do it and I think we've just gotten on this treadmill of life materialism and all these other things uh, that we don't need this I was speculating to my husband because living in Chicago, of course, we've had massive coverage on the Mississippi flood. And what really shocked me was one day uh, one of the mayors of those towns was quoted as saying, well, it's rained for 40 days. We've tried everything else. Now we'll have to try prayer. As if it was the last resort instead of the first. Right. You know, I would have thought that those people, before they filled their sandbags, would have a, a, a meeting in the town square, and everyone would be raising their hands and, and praising or doing whatever was comfortable for them and, and acknowledging the king of the universe first before they filled their sandbags. I'm not real sure because I don't have the mind of God. I don't know if that's if that is necessarily what might have happened, but I, I would be would have not been at all surprised if the rain stopped a little early. The book is real easy reading. Um, I, I like the idea there. Are, I don't didn't count how many stories there are. It looks like there are what twenty five. There's, there's about sixty five, but there's not sixty five chapters. Oh. Um, I put in sixty five different people. Okay. And some of them have you know just two or three paragraphs. I like uh, the, you know we won't talk about many of them. Oh, Obviously no. we can't. <laughs> but and and uh, but this is nice, and I think the the story of, of Stephen Rogers, the uh, rookie officer mm -hmm. in Nutley, New Jersey, was a cute story. Maybe you could. Just just kind of give our, our listeners a, a taste of what that's about. Angels with Nightsticks, which yeah. is the title of that chapter or that story. Steve is kind of a hard-boiled guy. I like the idea that angels are no respecter of persons. They seem, you don't seem to need to pass a test or be a certain kind of person in order to have an angel experience. They seem to come in every culture and to everyone, whether they are believers or not. And Steve kind of bears that out because he was a real tough rookie police officer and he met a policeman that he trained under who was a little more mellow and this guy had gotten into the Bible and so he he told Steve that what he wanted to do was to pray the 91st Psalm every night before they went out. They were drug detectives in plain clothes and they were normally incognito. They would go out and kind of see what was happening in Nutley, New Jersey and at that point they were having quite a heavy influx of drugs and they didn't want the kids necessarily they wanted the pushers as most law enforcement officers do but it was dangerous detail and so 
these two guys, these hard-bitten big guys, would sit in their squad every night and recite the 91st Psalm, which is, part of it is, I will send my angels around you to protect you. They will guard you, and they will lift you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And they, they seemed to, to, to feel more secure when they said that. But they kind of kept it quiet, kept it quiet, because, you know, they didn't want to be thought of as Bible thumpers. One night, they realized that um, their their um, informants had told them that there was going to be a major drug buy, and from all they could gather, it was going to be done in a cave area at out on the outskirts of town. And so they went out there looking, and they found the area. And sure enough, it looked as if there were a lot of the head guys that they had noted as suspected as being pushers going into this cave. And so they radioed for backup. They thought, what a major drug bust. But everyone was out on other assignments, and they were told, don't do this if you think you're going to be risky. Uh, Do it if you think you can manage it. So they decided to go for it, and they went in, and there were probably 25 people in the cave. Everyone was armed. And there were t- these two guys in plain clothes went in there and drew their guns and said, everybody down, and everybody in the cave meekly surrendered. They all laid down their weapons, they all sat on the floor, and they picked up all the drugs and waited until the backup arrived. Well, it wasn't until they got back to the station that Steve and this other guy started realizing how odd this was. Right, two people could make 25 people put their guns down. (laughs) And so some of them were young, and they asked them, why did you surrender so easily? And each one of them had exactly the same response. Well, we were hopelessly outnumbered because the cave was filled with police officers in blue uniforms. That was what they all saw. Now, my first thought, again, the general second-guessing of this would have been, were these people on drugs? Maybe they all had a hallucination. Or were they seeing double or triple? But was, <laughs> what was significant there was that Steve and his partner were not in blue uniforms. So they were not seeing, you know, a million versions of Steve. Um, that was an, uh, kind of an interesting thing. And the second thing was that they said these people, for the most part, were not on drugs themselves. They were usually selling to the high school crowd, and that's why they wanted to get them, because they were they were really messing up the teenagers. They ran drug tests on all of them, as they do, and uh, they were all clean completely. <laughs> so there had been nothing going on there of that nature. So basically, we just have another story. We do. Uh, which, which, which shows that, uh, pragmatically speaking, we're, we're looking at... Uh, we're looking at this uh, rise in visions. Mm-hmm. What What's going on here? Why are we having these visions? Well, uh, I have to say that from my staid Midwestern background, I was a little hesitant about, I thought it's okay, they could maybe come in human form, but when people started telling me that they would have apparition-type things, too, that gave that made me a little nervous because hmm. I thought, well, and yet And yet the Bible always talks about... Build apparitions and, and uh, precognition and mm-hmm. it's always uh, not always but almost all the time and, and it says an angel of the Lord came yes, and said this and or said told someone of this, so this mm-hmm. or told you know told Noah to build an ark I mean so on and so forth sure so and Joseph in the dreams a lot of times people will come up to me and say well now I've ha- I haven't really had an angel experience because it came to me in a dream but this is what happened and this is and I'd say to them why would you say that that would not be an angel experience well because it was 
was just a dream, you know, I, I, it could just be a fantasy. And I would say, but look at Joseph. He never saw a real angel in the flesh. He always was led through dreams. Mm. So dreams are another valid way of getting a message. Don't, don't write that off. But the one thing that, that I kind of had to pause on was when people started saying that they saw like the vision kind of angels. I thought, well, okay, now what do I think about this? It was really not my place to think anything at all because writers do not necessarily have to make decisions. We just have to put out in our books what it, what people are telling us. But I learned through this that what were what, at least what I had been overlooking was that children often seem to see angels. They have a real connection with other worlds that we don't notice or give them credit for. And all of my children have had imaginary companions, and I have just assumed that that's a preschool thing, maybe something that they needed for their own security. And so I just never said anything about it other than, you know, is is Peter in bed with you tonight? Yeah, Peter's lying right here. But But now I'm beginning to see that this might have been a lot more than that. People like to keep these stories in the Bible. Why do you think they don't like the idea of, of taking this stuff out and making it pragmatic? After all, I, I assume that that all of this stuff did happen at one time, which mm-hmm. means that in order for it to get in the Bible, these would have been stories in the first place, just like the stories you're telling now. Well, I think that they think that they're not deserving. Um, we look at people in the Bible as grand figures. We don't. We kind of gloss over the fact that they were people with feet of clay. They were human like beings, us. just like us. Just they lived. Like uh, they us. lived on the planet. I mean, mm-hmm. the planet hasn't changed that much. No, and human nature never changes. And so, all of a sudden, we we see them accomplishing great things, and we forget that they were scared and at the time that they were the most dysfunctional maybe is when an angel came so we we look at ourselves and we think well i'm just such a nobody why would god do this for me we we lose the whole idea that that he loves us so much that he he wants to do these things for us so they're kind of emissaries i guess mm-hmm. they're just what did they say in the bible Fear not. We bring you good news. Right. And I think that's what they're saying today, too. Let's talk a little bit about Universal Angel Day. How did that mm-hmm. start? Do you have any idea on the I history think at all? Janie Howard, who wrote a book on angels, is the one that kind of originated that. I was with her on a, a TV talk show last year, and at the time we were sitting in the dressing room, and she said, one of my goals has always been to, to sort of launch a national Be an Angel Day. And um, I said, well, that's a wonderful idea. How, what, how would we celebrate that? And she said, well, we could do things for each other anonymously because that's how angels work so often. So it was kind of neat. I'm sure she had it in her mind before our conversation, but several other people were there, and we all started talking about it. And that was probably, oh, maybe last fall. And Janie went home and just started writing letters to people. And from what I can understand, she's done a wonderful job of promoting it because I've been to several cities where they're planning little Mm. things. 
Interesting book because it's not your standard size. I don't know what size is this. It's not six by nine. Is it six by six maybe or something like that? Well, Ballantine has a line of angel books. And what they're trying to do is make them appear as if they are all part of a series. So they're all the same size and the covers are different colors. Maybe they're seven by seven. Maybe they are. Oh, that would be significant. I never did measure them. But, you know, the idea is you're supposed to pick one. And then if you like what you've read, you come back and you get another one so you can have the whole series eventually a matched set ah, <laughs> true stories of heavenly visitors and, and believe me these are all uh, as you said about what 60 some odd different uh... 65 or so stories mm-hmm. I just wanted to give people a cross section one of the interesting things about um, the response to the book is that I kind of I was a little hesitant about who was going to buy this. You know, I knew my mother would buy a few copies, and I wasn't real sure if it would <laughs> go not, beyond. But not the hundred thousand. That that's you right. No, that's right. And and I needn't have worried because um, within the first month. I received a call from a couple of psychotherapists who I would not have considered in the angel camp, so to speak, at least not my angel camp. They said that they had the book in their waiting room because it was short stories. People people came to psychotherapists with a lot of um, upset, and they found that through this past month, people had been soothed. They were sitting there reading the book and feeling much better, and so it was easier for them to get into what they needed to talk about. And at that same time, I went to a bookstore, and I cannot tell you what a thrill it is to have seen this image standing at the the checkout counter was a young woman buying 15 copies of my, my book. I almost cried. I went up to her, and she said she was a, an associate pastor at a United Methodist Church, and the, she and the pastor there had decided to use this book as the confirmation class text. So now here is a real mainstream religion at the same time as I'm getting some notes from, from psychic psychotherapists kind of guys that had an odd sort of practice, at least one that I was not familiar with. And then about a week later... I got a letter from a nurse at a hospice, and she told me that they had purchased several copies for the people that were coming to visit. Uh, she said, we just feel that there are angels all around us now. So I thought, So I you were, guess, main, were mainstreaming and integrating fast. <laughs> I said, I guess I don't have to worry. God will take the book where he wants it to be. Yeah. And of course, Eric's telling us that the uh, Eric incidentally is in the studio. For those of you who are wondering, and uh, uh, his bookstore um, has an angel section now, and he mm-hmm. was really uh, very, very uh, intrigued by that. To get a whole section about angels, that means that we're probably not looking at uh, a trend, or at least it doesn't look like it's a trend. No, I think if it's it is be a trend, around. it's a big one. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and actually, uh, that's interesting too, because when the first five of us kind of emerged uh, we thought well we're dealing with a real small pie here and so we'll probably each take a little slice of it and that'll be it and some people will buy the the new age kind of books and someone will buy mine and we'll each have our little slice what has happened is there have been more books coming out and so you would think well the pie slices have grown smaller except that the pie itself is enlarging so there are there are so many more people buying angel books that the more that come out each one has a a little bit of a different view and i'm finding it just fascinating because i've always felt that each one of us has a little piece of the truth and you put it all together and you can get the whole picture that way 
Thank you so much for being on the show. It was a great show. You're a delightful guest. Oh, thank you for asking me, Bruce. All right, and thank you for tuning in Timeless Voyager Radio. This is Bruce Stephen Holmes, and I hope that your own personal voyage through life towards the development of your highest potential is a joyous and successful one. Feel the